Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning, God. I thank you for your people that have gathered together, Lord. I thank you that your presence is with us this morning, and I just pray today, God, that you are, you are changing hearts already. I pray that it already started when we got here, that there are hearts that are churning and working. The Holy Spirit is working in hearts and minds as we speak. And so, Father, I pray that the seed that is sown today, the Word of God, um, that it takes root, God, and that it bears fruit in the lives of your people. Um, Lord, we just, we just pray that, that you would turn hearts today, that, that the that believing will be stronger in their faith, that, that we would have a sense of call and mission today. And for those who are lost, God, we, we, we pray that, that you find them today, that, that your lost sheep come home. And so, Father, I pray that you make the gospel beautiful. It's just, it's just your word, God, that can save people, your Holy Spirit that saves people. I'm just an instrument. And so, Father, I pray that you hide me, that you just use me as a vessel, Lord. Um, but Lord, I pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven today. In Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said, amen. You may be seated in the Lord's presence. In the sermon series, Life Lessons with Jesus, my sermon title today is Never Lost. You may know I am a, I, I am a documentary lover. I, I love documentaries. I love documentaries. And so there's a recent documentary that was on a streaming channel that, that shall remain nameless. It starts with the letter N. And, and they had this new documentary that I just thought was the most intriguing thing, but it did kind of strike some fear in me because I'm kind of afraid of this thing in the first place. But there's a documentary called MH370, The Plane That Disappeared. Now, if you have not seen this thing, it is one of the most interesting documentaries that I've ever seen in my life. But it, it chronicles uh, a plane that, w- that went missing on March 8, 2014 at 12.42 a.m., Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, which was carrying 239 passengers, 239 passengers, including 10 flight attendants. And roughly 11 minutes or so after the plane closed in on a wayport near the start of the Vietnamese air traffic control, the controller from one, one center radioed Malaysian 370, contact 120.9, good night. He was saying good night, you're leaving our airspace and going into another airspace. And the captain of the plane, we believe, spoke and said, good night, Malaysian 370. And those were the last words that were ever heard from anybody that was on that flight. And so what, what's interesting in the tragedy is that although it is nine years later, the plane still has not been found. And this was not just some small little plane or what the country folks would call a little small puddle jumper. No, this is a, a large plane. This is a 777 plane. This is a large plane carrying a large amount of people, but this plane was never found. And so the Netflix documentary chronicles the search for this plane, but it also chronicles some of the family members of those who were lost. And it just highlights the the pain of loss, that these people lost something that, were valuable, that was valuable to them. And so as this uh, documentary uh, carries along, what it does highlight it, and, and it becomes kind of strange, is that they, they, they cover these 
sleuths that come about who are doing their own search for the plane independent of the government. This is what makes it interesting. And so the, the, the latter half of the documentary is really all about conspiracy theories on what happened to this plane. And so there, there are several theories that they put forth. One that, that the, the pilot was a, a, a terrorist and he hijacked the plane and took it somewhere else to a different location. There's one that believes that some hijackers got on the plane and crashed the plane. There are some that believe the plane took off and immediately uh, went into the water. Uh, th- there are all kinds of theories. Another theory is that a certain country uh, uh, shot the plane down uh, because it was carrying weapons of mass destruction to Russia. And so they put forth all these theories. And what I found interesting was that there are people who had no relation to anybody on the plane that were doing their own separate search on their own dime, using their own resources and their own time. There's one gentleman in particular who's a bit of a strange guy. He was traveling all over the place to different islands around where they thought that the plane had crashed to find this plane. But, but lo and behold, no one was ever able to find anything and substantiate that what was found was actually a part of the plane. So, so, so here's, here's what I want to highlight to you, that, that there's a reason why people who are even, not even related to the people that were lost we're looking for this. I think it highlights the, the, the human nature that, that when we think that we've lost something valuable, there's something in us that says, I got to do what I got to do to find that which was lost. That there's something about us when we lose something, we got to find what we lost, especially if we consider it something to be extremely valuable to us. And so what, what I think the text is pointing out for us today is that if human beings are willing to, to invest their own resources to find something that has nothing to do with them, how much more so would the God of the heavens and the earth use everything in his power to search and find that which actually belongs to him? And so this, this is a story of, of God seeking after something that is lost. And let me tell you this, God is relentless when it comes to the lost. God is absolutely relentless. God is so relentless that, that when his people were lost, God conducted his very own rescue mission and he sent his own son to find and recover that which was lost. And this rescue mission was conducted through a message and a man's actions. The, the ministry of Jesus is actually God's rescue mission. And so God sent his son to earth to preach the good news about the kingdom of God to those who are lost. And so when we pick up this story, we see Jesus preaching the good news about the kingdom. And the interesting thing is that the message is attracting a group of people that no one would have expected. The message is attracting the despised people in society. It says in verse one that all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching him. And so let me just clear this up for you. These were people who had despised reputations. These were people who had bad reputations. These were people that that in our culture, we all would identify as some unsavory characters. These are people that that do things that, that, that shall remain nameless among us. These are things that we know that people do that would get them put in jail. Or these are things that, that most of us probably wouldn't do if push came to shove. But these are the types of people 
that are attracted to Jesus' message. And it tells us that, that their sinners are coming and there's tax collectors. Now, now you may see, hear tax collector, you think, what's the big deal about, about a tax collector? Well, tax collectors were typically Jewish men who collected tolls and tariffs from the Jewish people on behalf of the Roman government. The problem is that they didn't just take what the Roman government told them to take, they took a little extra for themselves. Tax collectors typically tax their own people over and above what they were supposed to do and line their own pockets. And so what they did was they made the rich richer and they made the poor that much poorer. And so the tax collectors were, were, had this reputation in society for being dishonest characters. They, they were, a, a tax collector was synonymous with a thief, somebody who steals. They, they were universally despised during this time. No one wanted to be lumped with a tax collector. But, but these are the types of people that were drawn to Jesus' message. And then it talks about that there, there were sinners were coming. These were people who were not keeping the law in this strict manner. They, they kind of were, were, were not with the whole religious things. And, but, but for some reason, they were attracted to the message of Jesus. And you may be saying that, that's good for, him, for, for them, but do you know that, that at one point you too were a sinner that, have been, that has been attracted to the message of Jesus? It's easy for you to look down on the tax collector and the sinner, but you would have fit in one of those two categories. But there is something about the gospel that, that draws unbelieving people to it. And, and you ask the question, why would this good news attract these kinds of people? Number one, God is drawing those people. And number two, when you realize you're in a helpless situation, the good news gives you hope when you've been helpless. The good news says that you realize that, that I don't have my stuff together, that, that, that I'm struggling in life, that I've been trying to get over this on my own. I've been trying to break these habits by myself. I've been trying to live a good life by myself, but I keep messing up. I keep stumbling. I keep doing things that I said I would never do. But the good news says, say less. You don't have to save yourself. God has made a way for you, and it's free. And, and, and so th these people are attracted to this, this good news because people who are helpless now have found hope. But the good news is not good news to people that, they don't, know, that, that don't know that they're in trouble. And I think that this becomes a, the problem with our generation and people who are not attracted to Jesus. I think we believe that we're in great shape. We think that we're good how we are. One of our favorite phrases is, I'm good. I'm good. You want something to eat? I'm good. You want something to drink? I'm good. You need a ride? I'm good. We say I'm good about everything. But spiritually speaking, without Christ, you're not good. We, we are not as good as we think we are. And this is the issue with the Pharisees and the scribes in this story. These are the religious leaders of the day. They don't realize the situation that they are in. They think that they are, that they, that they are righteous and, and their relationship with the law is what is going to save them. They think that if we keep the law, if I just do the works of the law, if I keep the commandments, if I obey them perfectly, then, then I can save myself. This is what they think. The Pharisees, they are religious sect who are keep a strict adherence 
adherence to God's law. They believed that they were righteous because they kept the law, and they despised other people who didn't keep the law. And then there are the scribes. The scribes are writers of the law. They know the law backwards, and they know the law forward. And both of these groups are complaining about Jesus because Jesus is hanging with people that they don't think he should be hanging with. And so when it talks about them complaining, this is not just regular complaining. This is synonymous to the complaining that happened in the Old Testament. If, if you've read the Bible before uh, and you've read the Old Testament, it, it records the story about God's people being lost, right? And, and the, the group of, God's group of people, Israel, they, they find themselves in the wilderness. God has brought them out of bondage, but they are in the wilderness. And one of the things that happens in the wilderness is God is taking care of them. God is sustaining them. God is teaching them dependence, that, that, that they should depend on him, that, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is what the wilderness is trying to teach Israel before they go into the promised land, because they get in a promised land without learning that they need to depend on God, they'll think that they got themselves in the promised land. This is the problem with us. If, if, if God doesn't put us in a situation where we realize we're helpless and dependent upon him, when we get to somewhere, we will take all the credit for it. Right? And, and, and so the issue is Israel is complaining because things aren't how it used to be in Egypt. And most people think the Israelites, that they didn't reach the promised land because of idolatry. No, they didn't reach the promised land because they kept complaining. That, 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 that shows the danger of constant complaining. Some of us complain about everything, but God is not casual about complaining, right? When we wake up in the morning, life may not be what you think it should be, but there is something to be thankful for. You may not be where you want to be in life, but, but, but there is something to give God praise for when you wake up in the morning. I'll help you. If you can't find anything else to think about, just do this. You're breathing. That's, that's a good start, right? That God, thank you for this breath, right? But, but these people are complaining. You know what they're complaining? The same reason Israel was, was complaining. They can't discern that God is working in their midst. They should have saw that manna from heaven. They should have saw Jesus give the, uh, God give them th- this water and, and take care of them and realize we didn't do this for ourselves, but we keep eating and we keep drinking and we keep living. God must be up to something. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they don't recognize that God is right there in their midst. And so they complain about the way that he's doing ministry and they complain about who he is associating with. And they say, this man welcomes sinners. And not only that, but he eats with them. They could not fathom that a religious leader would actually hang out and spend time with somebody that's not saved. They they can't believe that someone saved would engage with somebody that's not saved. Matter of fact, the Pharisees, the gospel records that the Pharisees would pray this prayer. They would say, thank God I'm not a robber, I'm not an adulterer, and thank God I'm not a tax collector. I pay my tithes is what they would pray. They would pray and thank God that they were not a tax collector. And so these people are so self-righteous. And when Jesus keeps company with people who they don't deem as righteous, they think it invalidates his claim as the Messiah. But what makes it worse is that Jesus is not only hanging with them, he's sharing a meal with them. You and I go to lunch with anybody, so it's not a big deal. But in that culture, to eat with somebody meant that you accepted them and you stood in solidarity to whatever they stood. You accepted whatever they did and you stood in solidarity with them. 
So when they saw Jesus eating with these sinners and tax collectors, they thought, oh, he condones what they do. But Jesus wasn't condoning what they did. He was actually on assignment to save them. But they didn't realize this. And so I want to tell you this, Jesus is openly associating with people that the rest of society said he shouldn't associate with. And this is what we've been called to. We've been called to evangelism. We've been called to actually share the good news of the gospel with people. And I think we oftentimes think that we're doing evangelism when we hang out with other Christians. And so we end up having debates with other Christians about the finer points of theology. That's fine and dandy, but at some point in your schedule, at some point in your calendar for the month, you should be spending some time, if you are a believer, with somebody that's not saved. That, 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 that should be a part of your mission to, to spend some time with somebody who is far away from God. And this is what Jesus is doing. And so I want to tell you this, evangelism is essential to the life of a Christian. It's not something that we do, it's actually who we are. It is who we are. We, we are called to share our faith. But my fear is that this individualized version of Christianity has subverted what it means to care about the loss. There is minimal burden for the loss to come to faith. And so we have a tendency to retreat into our own Christian enclaves and country clubs. So all of our friends are saved. All of our friends go to church. All of our friends listen to the same worship music. All of our friends... Believe what we believe, but God calls us to engage and invest in those that are lost. Now, I hear you like, awesome. I got so many unsaved friends, Pastor, I don't know what to do with. This is right up my alley. I've been looking for a reason not to get rid of my friends. I've been looking for a reason to hang out, and you just gave it to me. I'm evangelizing, and I didn't know that's what I was doing. I, we don't talk about Jesus at all, but I'm evangelizing. I want to warn you today, Jesus was not endorsing or overlooking their sin. Jesus condemned sin in every form, regardless of the context or the circumstances. He eats with them, but he does not become them. I need you to hear that today. When we're not strong in our faith and our convictions and we're weak, we can have a tendency to undermine what we say we believe in order to stand in solidarity with those who don't believe. And this is not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not hanging with them because he condones their behavior or their lifestyle. Jesus is on assignment in relationship with these people. He is not becoming them. He is leading them somewhere. We need to hear this today, and the issue with us is oftentimes is that when we encounter the unbelieving, they aren't changed, but we are. How is that possible that you are the one with the faith? With, with you, you're saying that God and the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of me, but somehow you get around this crowd and they change you, but they're left unchanged. We don't know what we believe. We're not sure. We try to deconstruct our faith. We don't know if we, we agree with God or we agree with the Bible, depending on who we hang around. And he is not telling us to become them. He's telling us to go after them. You notice something? Jesus' holiness is not contaminated by their uncleanliness, but his holiness transcends their unholiness and it makes them clean. I need to say this again for the people in the back that didn't hear me. Jesus' holiness is not contaminated by their uncleanliness, but Jesus' holiness transcends their uncleanliness and he makes them clean. And so what I'm telling you is this, you should be able to go around your friends and not let them transform you, but you transform them. 
But in order to fit in, we got to agree with what they believe. And this is not what he's calling us to. Jesus' goal was to draw them to God. He wanted to encourage them to know God. And this is why Jesus intentionally went in the direction of sinners. This is why he saw Zacchaeus. This is why he met the woman at the well. This is why he healed the sick. He healed those who were were demon-possessed. He did this on purpose because he was transforming their woeful condition. And so we see Jesus transforming people's physical condition. What we need to realize is he was transforming their spiritual condition first. This is what he calls us to do. When they encountered Jesus, notice he was never changed, but they were. He was never changed, but they were. When people encounter us, we should not be changed, but they should be. Jesus was clear about his mission. Luke 19 and 10 says this. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. This is Jesus' mission statement. And this is what brings about this parable today. So what is a parable? A parable is a common illustration that communicates a spiritual truth about the kingdom of God. When Jesus tells a parable, he's telling a story or telling or using an analogy of something that is familiar in their culture and society, but he's using that to communicate a spiritual truth. And this parable is revealing to us what God is doing through his son, Jesus. Here's what it says in verses four through seven. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. And I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Now, now, now he asked this question. He poses a question like, like who has a hundred sheep and one leaves? Who actually leaves the 99 and goes after the one? Now, reality a shepherd would have some attendance that if one sheep got lost and he went after the other sheep, that there would be someone to look after the 99. That would actually, that's actually kind of what would happen. But remember, this is a parable. This is a parable. And so Jesus is telling an exaggerated story. He doesn't mention anybody looking after the sheep when he leaves. He doesn't mention an attendant because he wants you to see a picture of him being by himself, leaving 99 to go after one. He wants you to see that he's willing to risk everything one sheep because that's how valuable it is to him so you know if a sheep were going in a sheep pen they would be counted one by one all the way to 100 if they owned 100 but he counts and he realizes that one is missing but he doesn't just shrug his shoulders and say well I got 99 what do I need with one other sheep no he thinks all of his sheep are valuable so much so that he's willing to go after one and this is a vision of a shepherd that represents God's care for his people. God is recovering what is his. He wants to recover what belongs to him. And you may say that's a cute story about the sheep, but I wanna tell you that the sheep is not just regular old sheep, that's about us. Isaiah 53 and six says this, very clear in Isaiah 53 says this, we, underline we, we all went astray like what? Sheep, we 
all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. So here it tells us that every sheep at some point has gone astray. But this story is telling us that the shepherd would stop at nothing to, to cut, recover his lost sheep. The lost sheep could not find its way back to the shepherd on its own. He needs the help of his shepherd. He's helpless. But you know what I noticed, know what I noticed in this story? I noticed that the shepherd takes initiative to go get the sheep. That he takes initiative. That he doesn't wait for the, for the sheep to walk his way back to the sheepfold. But, but the shepherd actually leaves where he is, takes initiative to go get what actually belongs to him. This is the grace of God at work. This is what salvation for us is like. We didn't go searching after God. God came and got us. So the Bible is clear that no one seeks after God. They don't repent and then he comes and seek them. No, he seeks them and then they repent. He comes and gets them first. And what has separated the sheep from the shepherd Sin. The fall of man in the garden brought about sin separated, sin in the garden separated man from God. And this is the issue with humanity. This is the issue for all of us. Our sin has separated us from our creator. Sin has disrupted the peace that we had with God. Here's what Ephesians 2 says. Ephesians 2 verses 12 through 14 says this. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from the citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not, need, did not know the covenant promises God made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles in one people in his own body on the cross. He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. What we see here is that we were lost, but God conducts a rescue mission to come and get us. Romans 5, 6-8 gives another picture. When we were utterly helpless... Christ, at, at the, just the right time, died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. That is a rescue mission. Notice every time we are the ones in trouble, we are the ones who are lost, we are the ones that have gone astray, and what happens every time? God comes and gets those that are lost. We don't find God. God comes and gets us. And at some point, we were all lost. But the great shepherd comes and rescues us and restores us back to a right relationship with God. This is the good news. So this same, same condition that meets the sheep meets the lost coin. The sheep is helpless. And he gives a parable of this lost coin. This woman has 10 coins and she loses one. But notice something about a coin. If you lose a coin in your pocket, you lose it in the house, who has ever seen a dime get up out of your sofa, walk over to you, and jump back in your pocket? Who has ever lost any money and the money found you? That's not what happens. When you realize it's lost, what do you do? You go and get it. The sheep are helpless. The coin is lifeless. 
And the Bible paints the same picture for you and I. I can't overstate this. We were lost. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses. We were separated from God. We were without hope in the world. It gives a, a dark, blight, huge picture of, of humanity without God. But then Jesus comes in and shines the light and rescues us. You need to see this, that we will help us without him. But he comes and he picks us up and brings us home. This is the good news of the gospel, that we didn't do it on our own, but God did it for us. God did it for us. So I want you to see this, that just because something is lost does not mean it's not valuable. God cares about what he creates because Jesus is not just Lord, he's also creator. And he seeks after what rightfully belongs to him. You, you can read this and think, okay, shepherd, okay, lost people, I get it. But here's how we have to see people. These are not just lost objects walking around. Lost people still bear the image of God. And so, so God is not just recovering some, something out there. God is recovering those who have been made in his image. That's valuable to God. So I want to tell you today, if you're lost, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, you are valuable to God even in your lost state. If you are here today and you are a believer, but you don't realize this reality and you don't have self-worth, you feel like nobody wants you, you feel like nobody cares for you, you feel misunderstood, you feel alone, you have value even in your lost state. God sees you as valuable. Don't base it on how you feel. Base it on the reality of your faith in Christ Jesus. He gave you his identity. That means you have value. You have worth. You have dignity today. I don't care how you grew up or what they said to you or that they told you never amount to anything or that you're just like your daddy or that you're just like your mama or you'll be just like your brother or you'll be just like your sister or you're just like the neighborhood you grew up in. That's all lies when you come into a relationship with the Lord Jesus. He restores your identity. He gives you value, dignity, and worth. You are worth redeeming. <laughs> Hear this today. If you are battling with suicide or depression or anxiety or you, you have sleepless nights, whatever the case, you have not lost your value. You are valuable today. You need to hear that. You are so valuable that God was willing to send his son for you. Here's what Ezekiel said, Ezekiel 34, 16. I will seek the lost, bring back the strays, bandage the injured, and strengthen the weak. You know what happens in the text? That's interesting. It doesn't just say he goes back and gets the sheep. Like he takes his cane, like you imagine a shepherd that has a cane, right? It kind of shepherds them in and kind of leads them with the cane. That, that, that's true. But it doesn't say that. It says he picks him up and carries him back to the sheepfold. He picks him up. That's a picture of us. We, we didn't get up on our own. God picked you up from where you were, picked you up out of that grave of sin. He picked you up, put you across his shoulders. God picked you up so you don't need to have the strength to, to do it on your own or get yourself together or, or stop doing this sin or stop doing that or get over this addiction on your own. God can pick you up right where you are. Your sin is not heavy enough. Your past is not too bad for God to pick you up. So 
he carries it. And it says that heaven rejoices. The angels rejoice. But there's something that makes them rejoice. It's not just that the shepherd brings them. It's that once they come into the knowledge and understanding, they repent. And here's where I think we misunderstand Christianity. Because I think cultural Christianity has taught us that we can just believe that Jesus was a good person and believe that some of the stuff in the Bible is real cool and believe that we agree with some of it, but we can get rid of some of the other stuff uh, and that we can still be a Christian. But no, to enter into the kingdom of heaven, we must first repent. Now I know you're thinking, okay, what does that actually, what does that even mean? I've heard it before. The word repent in the Greek literally just means to change your mind. Literally means to change your mind. But I'm going to give you a working definition of repentance. And here's what it looks like. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin. Pause. Wait a minute. It's not I might get caught or I got caught. So I'm going to stop. No, it is heartfelt sorrow for sin. Then a renouncing of that sin and a sincere commitment to leave that sin behind and then walk in obedience, but not in your own power, aided by the Holy Spirit. So let's read this together. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walking in obedience to Christ, aided by the Holy Spirit. So some of us may have said that we were Christians, but we've never turned from the life, the old life that we lived. And the unfortunate thing is we have many people who say they bear the name of Jesus, but they've never turned from their sins. Now that does not mean perfection. That doesn't even mean uh, you don't still have a desire to sin. It just means that we don't live a life of sin. There's a slip up. And then there's a climbing up the ladder and jumping off the diving board into the deep end of the pool and swimming to the bottom. But, but repentance says, I'm turning from my sin and I'm trusting in Christ. I'm not doing a 360, I'm doing a 180. Because some of y'all do a 360. Y'all be like, all right, I'm turning from this sin, turning towards Christ, but I'm white right back where I left as if I never left. That's not repentance. That's insanity. Repentance is 180. Insanity is 360. We want 180. We don't want 360. 360 is good in the slam dunking contest in the NBA. It's not good for Christianity. All right? Here's what 2 Corinthians 7.10 says. But the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow which lacks repentance results in spiritual death. Why? Because you never trusted in him in the first place. So repentance comes as a response to the grace of God. You hear the good news about Jesus and what he's done for you. You recognize that you are a sinner. You realize what he has already done for you. Then you repent. And that repentance leads to salvation. The aim and goal of repentance is the forgiveness of sins and salvation. 
That's the goal of when I repent, I, I am forgiven. God has wiped my slate clean. It is behind me. That, that is no longer who I am. That is no longer how you should identify me. I am a new person in Christ Jesus. Are we clear on that? But then something happens. And I love this. As I come to a close, here's what I love. Here's what I love. That when someone repents of, of, of their sin, it's not a golf clap. So, it literally gives the picture. Y'all ever seen the movie House Party? Some of y'all, some of y'all weren't born. There's a movie from the 90s called House Party. There's a one and there's a two. And I think they just made a three. Don't watch it. There's a one and there's a two. Um, um, and, and, and these guys celebrate like they've lost their minds. They invite the whole school to their house. This is the picture that it gives, that when somebody repents and they get saved, we don't treat it casually, but we have a crazy party. We go absolutely crazy, and we're not doing it because we just want to go crazy, but that's actually what heaven is doing when somebody repents and turns from their sin. Heaven is having a party up there when someone comes to faith in Christ Jesus, and it suggests that we should be doing the same. So when we see people get saved in church, we shouldn't just be casual with it. Good for them. What time is brunch? No, we should do everything that we need to do. Stand on our feet, run around, shout, praise the Lord, lift up our voices, say hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, do whatever it takes because it is worth throwing a party over. If you look at social media, we celebrate uh, uh, gender reveals. People are going crazy, shooting up blue and pink or whatever other colors they got out there. People are doing everything. We're celebrating engagements. We're celebrating graduations and job promotions and new houses and new cars. And we want to tell everybody, but I never see people celebrate on social media when somebody in the church gets saved. We got to make getting saved great again. Make salvation great again is our new moniker. Make salvation great again. Because if there's anything worth saving, it's a life being saved. I'm all for celebrating a baby being born, but it doesn't trump a rebirth. Because you can be born and die in your sins. But when you're reborn, you never die again. You live for eternity. There's a day you were born, and then there's a day you were born. I'm going to give you a picture of this. Luke 5, 27 through 32, a tax collector. Here's what happens. After this, Jesus went out, saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. Just, he's at H&R Block. He's at Liberty Tax. He said, whatever your tax person is called, if you did file, if you haven't filed, the day's the day. Is the day the deadline? It's yesterday. You missed it. It's 18th? Extension? All right, cool. So leaving everything behind, repentance, he got up and began to follow. That's trust. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now, there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with him. Let me pause. That means this former tax collector who got saved, who turned his life around and started following Jesus, was not too shamed to invite his still unsaved friends. 
how you going to be saved and it's a secret? Some of you are saved secretly. Might I suggest if you're keeping your salvation a secret and you're not living in a foreign country where there's persecution for being saved, you might not actually be saved. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for the salvation, right? And, and, and so if you're saved, you shouldn't be ashamed of anything. It is a reason to boast. So if this tax collector who everybody knew was foul can have a party and a banquet with other unsaved people, so can you and I. But the haters, I'm sorry, the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus replied, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When's the last time you just went to the hospital in the emergency room for giggles? When is the last time you just woke up on a Saturday and said, I feel great, I'm going to the hospital? <laughs> Nobody goes to the hospital for no reason. You go if you're sick. You go if you're sick. So Jesus said, it's not the people who are well, the righteous, the self-righteous who need a doctor, but it's the sick. But God rejoices when sinners repent. And Jesus invites us to celebrate. You know, I was thinking, we lose a lot of stuff. We lose a lot of stuff, but nothing is worse than losing these. It's a, it don't matter what kind of car you got. If you lose these, it is a tragedy. If you, have you ever lost your keys? But not just lost your keys on a random Saturday when you got nothing to do. You ever lost your keys when you're already late for work? Yep. <laughs> you ever lost your keys when you... That type of search is not a, a normal type of search. When you lose your key and you're already late for work, and to add on the fact that you were late the day before, <laughs> so you super can't be late today, and you can't find them keys, you call people who hadn't even been at your house to ask them, did I leave my keys? Do, do you have my keys? You ask your spouse, have you seen my keys? You search in places that you know that your keys are not located looking for your keys. You're all in the closet on the floor looking for your keys. You don't put your keys in the closet. You're searching everywhere. But if you get real desperate and you cannot find them, you know where sometimes we end up looking for our keys? We will look in the trash for our keys. You can be dressed for work, have on good clothes, have put on perfume and cologne, did your makeup, lotioned all up, but if you get desperate enough, you are willing to go in your dirty trash because you think your keys are that valuable. And what I'm trying to tell you is, if you act that way about your keys, what do you think Jesus did when he left the comfort of heaven and came down and got in a trash-filled humanity of sin, wickedness, and evil? He thought that you were worth getting in the mess dying on a bloody cross for your sins and tuck on the wrath of God for you so that you would be saved. And what I'm saying is, if you look for keys, God is looking for the loss. That's how he searches for the loss. You feel the panic when you lose your keys and you're late. This is what God feels. 
of his lost souls. And the point of this parable is that we should feel the same way when we see the loss. And this is what he invites us to. And I'm done. And I want to tell you this today. That if you are without God, if you are not a believer and you are here today, God thinks that you are so valuable that he already sent his son to die for your sins. He sent his son into this fallen world, into our fallen condition to take on our sins. He died for our sins. Because the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. But here comes the good news. But the gift of God is eternal life. So if you're here today and you've been doing it on your own, trying to find your way and find your purpose and find your destiny and find this and find that, you can stop looking. God has already made a way. He's found you. All you have to do is trust him. All you have to do is trust him. Turn from your own way and trust in what he's done for you. That's it. That's the nature of the gospel. The good news, the bad news is that we were lost. The good news is that we've been found because of what Christ did for us. All eyes closed, heads bowed. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.